Money Minutes. Today, Afterpay, Zip Money, Sezzle, it's the buy now, pay later revolution. Their share prices have absolutely boomed. Today we break down this sector to strip away the hype from the real numbers. It's great to have your company for another episode and this one goes to the very heart of the stock market boom, especially in tech stocks since the initial crash after the coronavirus hit. Now some of the tech stocks, I thoroughly understand why they've performed so well. There's been super demand for devices, home computing and also the need for more service space. That's a consequence of the virus and the boom in working, shopping and staying at home. But there are some parts of this boom that really do need to be questioned. And those that should come under most scrutiny are where the losses are mounting with no seeming end and advertising budgets for products that are massive. Welcome to the buy now, pay later sector, which some call a fintech, but which I call a good old fashioned lay-by system, except in this case, one that remains only a tiny fraction of the overall payment systems here and overseas. A bigger problem is that Australia's governments have not yet brought these companies in under the Credit Act, as they should, because of the massive and growing bad debts that consumers are getting into, despite the company's spin that these default fees are just a tiny portion of their revenue. The problem is, those bad debts are racking up, and they're now a very big part of these companies' expenses. So sit back and listen to a dissection of the buy now, pay later sector, here and overseas. For some, it might seem like, well, easy money. But in truth, you should have all learned well and truly by now that there's really any such thing. conversation about these buy now pay later businesses and the enormous boom they've had on the stock market and how it would seem as though they're poised to take over the world or at least that's what the stock price seems to indicate about them I want to bring in here a man who is a specialist in the area of payments so this whole area that is Grant Halverson who is the chief executive and managing director of a consulting company called McLean Roach but prior to this he was the managing director of Diners Club in Australia the Executive Vice President of Citibank, its Asian consumer banking business, and also has been uh, an executive mentor at the Melbourne Business School. Grant, many thanks for your time. Thank you, Ross. Pleasure to be with you. Okay, so you've been doing a bit of writing and research about sort of Afterpay, Zip, uh, these types of companies, um, and you've simply come to the conclusion that you think that it is really hot air what's taking place on the stock market. And this is not necessarily the the revolution in payments that many people are suggesting it is. Exactly right. I I don't believe the hype is justified. But look, that's the stock market. That's not the real world that payments operate in. And if you consider that buy now, pay later products have been around really for a very long time, what's new is putting these products on a phone app. That's been done since 2005 when a Swedish company, Klarna, did it. Okay, so let's just go back and go, you know, Australia really has got these these companies such as Zip, such as Afterpay. Like, if I go back not all that long ago, if I go back into 2018, you could have bought, uh, say, Zip shares for less than a dollar, 
right? right. They suddenly right. get to a peak at one stage of, you know, sort of more than $8, and they have come off in recent times um, since PayPal announced that it might be trying to get into this business as well. And it always seemed to me that, you know, the revolution in payments for the world coming from Australia, and especially with Afterpay, and its share price performance has been, as we know, absolutely mercurial, um, right. you know, going literally from $0.90 cents up to a peak of, what was it, $88, no, $8. So that's, actually, I'll do the other one, Afterpay, Afterpay. So Afterpay, say, for example, 2019, uh, $12. It reaches a peak at one stage of $88 and has now come mm. off to $75. I mean, this is really implying that these companies are going to take over the world, but there's other competitors out there as well. Well, there is, and the whole payments landscape does have a trend of doing this. If you look at other trends, for example, in the US in the early, or 2012, 2014, what were called P2P lenders took off. One called Lending Club went from $3 to $128. Today, it's back down at $3. If you look at the monoline credit card companies earlier than that, if you look at neobanks in Europe, so there's a whole lot of trends that do happen where these you know, what are labelled and loosely fintechs explode onto the market. They're seen to be revolutionary and new and their, their stock price goes absolutely massively forward very quickly. But then reality strikes when today, buy now, pay later in Australia does not even have 1% of payments. And that's after six years. So you start to say, well, when are they going to get to 10%? After 60 years, what will their stock price be worth then? Okay, so let's then bust it back down to it's 1% of payments. So in other words, credit cards dominate. Um, there's quite clearly uh, direct debit is, is sitting there as well. So there's a range of different ways in which people pay. And as yeah. you say, you know, $1 and 100 these days is going to buy now, pay later. Then you come to the second part of this equation, and that is the actual business model itself where the buy now, pay later companies make money. Because to justify these share prices, they have got to make a lot of profit in the future. That's what the people buying those shares are punting on. So just explain where the profit comes from. Well, well, their revenue, well, at the moment, the buy now, pay later companies don't make any profits. They've got actually quite considerable losses. But their revenue model is, is designed from a $100 sale. So if you go and buy a pair of jeans at a store, the retailer pays the buy now, pay later company $4 in revenue for that sale. And, and from, that, uh, from that, they then have to pay all their expenses, all their costs. So if, if you break out the, the $100 to $4 in revenue, for, at the moment, they're actually losing money. The average is about 27 cents they're losing. From, from within that, they then also obviously have to pay their, their biggest expenses, in fact, credit losses, funding, obviously paying their staff, paying their marketing and so on. Okay, so then there's another question that I have. Why would a retailer want to give away $4 of every $100 of sales to a buy now, pay later business? Well, they've done a very good job of positioning themselves as being a product for millennials and Gen, and, and Gen Z. So typically, they're after younger, mostly females who want, they started in the fashion area and they've broadened out from that. But they've done a very good job of presenting that they are a different, uh, have different consumers and a different model. And that's been adopted by, I think, retailers who, who really have been feeling the pinch. But surely with many retailers, the profit margin is barely going to be 4% on a $100 sale. It might be more or less, but you know it's going to be still pretty skinny. So I, I sit there and wonder that when retail margins are already under pressure, especially with very big retailers, why that $4 when other payments systems that are around the place are much, much cheaper? 
I think it does, Ross, but it does vary. I mean, the, the margins in fashion and on cosmetics are better, obviously, than, say, grocery. So, you know, no grocer is accepting buy now, pay later because their margins are 1%. Whereas, you know, if you look at the gross margin in jewellery or particularly online products, they're often much higher. So I think the retailer believes they're going to get uh, increased sales and obviously, you know, in their view, in the competition, they want to respond. Okay, so then there's a point that you make is that, you know, say Afterpay and you analyse their results, um, no profit, accumulated losses of $122 million, um, $30 million worth of shares for executives um, and others over the course of a year. Um, So it's one of these points at which shareholders who have been out there paying, as we say, these outrageous prices up to 75 bucks a share at the moment for Afterpay shares, they have got to ask when the payday comes. Yeah, exactly. And and, and the the problem is that the buy now, pay later model is a very, very high volume model. I mean, Afterpay does 11.1 billion in sales, but their core revenue is only 443 million. So they're very low, they're very low margin businesses. So you have to, to make a profit, you have to be very good and you have to be very efficient. And you also have to have, you know, considerable scale. They have none of that. In other words, at the moment, if you've got Global sales of 11.1 billion, that's not enough scale to justify all of the costs you have going around the world. They're now in 10 markets and they're simply going to be bleeding red ink for the next four to five years while they try and build scale. Okay, so how important to those buy now, pay later companies are the uh, the late fees that they receive? The reason I ask this is because whenever they're questioned about the fact as to whether they are actually a credit provider... Uh, or whether, in fact, there's something different. They always claim to be something different and say that the late fees really don't matter terribly much to them. But how important do you think they are? Well, it's a double-edged sword in a way because they're, they're charging customers late fees. Now, a lot of those customers go broke. So in a sense, you never get that money back. So they only get – it's really the, 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 the cash in the hand they get from that, which is which is a portion of it. I mean, Afterpay, for example, had had – in total bad debts, that's the bad debts and costs for collection, was $117 million in their last year. They, they got $65 million in bad in, in, in late fees. And if you look at all of the seven listed binopolatic companies on the stock exchange, there's now seven of them. They had revenues of $764 million, but they had bad debts of $245 million. So that's 32% of their revenue. Was, was was taken up in, in, in bad debt costs. Now, if a bank did that, ASIC would declare them broken be, uh, as a failed bank. I mean, the, the, you know, the Commonwealth Bank, for example, they've got revenues of 23 billion. They've got bad debts of, of one, 1.1 billion. So that's 4.6%. The, the buy now palatal companies have got 32% of their revenues as bad debts. And yet they're not considered a lender. I just find that extraordinary. So they're not considered the lender, but if you then start to actually uh, tote up what the late fees technically cost the consumer, and you, uh, you put that as an equivalent of an interest rate, you start to realise that, for some of them at least anyway, um, a, a high interest credit card might be a, a genuine option for them. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, and, and they're very good at labelling these fees late fees or an account fee, or and, and that's typical in this sort of low-end consumer lending businesses where they do, uh, you know, that they avoid the use of the, of the word interest, which is which sparks millennials' interest because millennials want to try to, uh, you know, they are against debt. They don't want to take on any form of lending. So that's where, you know, a late fee is not considered to be 
charging them interest. And also, as they operate outside, you know, they're not required to, to, to conform to the lending requirements under, under and responsible lending. Uh, and so that, you know, they can get away with it so far. The point is, Australia is an outlier in this sense. We're the only country, we're the only OECD country that doesn't have a, a, a lending act which requires all lenders to be held, you know, to be held accountable. I mean, we have this ridiculous situation here where the law really only requires, only comes in to regard a, a loan once it's past 62 days. So there's insurance premiums, instalments, bill facilities, and even things like staff loans are, are considered not to be lending in Australia, whereas every other OECD country they are. So, okay, so the buy now, pay later businesses also have increasing competition. I mentioned PayPal a little earlier, but even right. here in Australia, you've got the National Australia Bank and the Commonwealth Bank coming out with new cards that effectively are a 0% interest. Uh, so they're giving the credit away up to $3,000 of credit with no interest charged and then a monthly fee when the card is actually used. Is that again going to potentially challenge the buy now, pay later sector? I don't think that particular execution will. I think that's not... not I, I can't see how millennials and Gen Z would really be uh, be attracted to that. Other other consumers might be. I think the other competition you've got is things like Klarna is coming into Australia, which is a which is a global leader. It's a Swedish company. Uh, it's got a joint venture with the Commonwealth Bank. So again, the banks are entering the fray in that way. You've got obviously Zip has has got Westpac shareholding. So I think there's going to be a number of different ways that competitors will will enter the into the market. But I think whilst the Australian market is key at the moment for these buy now pay later providers, I mean 60% of afterpay's revenue comes from Australia and New Zealand. The stock market, I think, is looking to to growth in the US and Europe has been key to their success, and that's going to be a a much, much tougher, uh, tougher thing to do, I think. And, and given your experience, um, do you believe that these Australian companies can really crack those markets in the way quite clearly that the, uh, the shareholders buying their shares right now are imagining that they will? No, I don't think they will because there's a, there's a number of headwinds in the place like the US and in Europe that, that make it very, very challenging. And I think I mean, at the moment, Afterpay and Zip are really going for broke. They've they've gone and they've made acquisitions. They've bought on a whole lot of staff. They're spending like mad. And if they don't get, it, it's almost like a, you know, they're wanting to hit the ball out of the park. And if they don't do that, I think they're going to have some trouble. But in the U.S., you have major barriers. I mean, for example, the online market in the U.S., 55% of that market is dominated by Amazon. Uh, and Amazon has just announced a partnership with Citibank. Citibank's going to have free access to all of their customers. I mean, Amazon, you know, US has got 330 million people. Amazon has 118 million prime account holders in the US. And those people pay 120 bucks a year to make online purchases, get streaming and free delivery. Citibank has free access to all of those customers and they've launched a buy now, pay later product in that segment. So Afterpay, Klarna, which is also, you know, got in the US, there are 25 different buy now, pay later products as well. They're all going to find it really tough, I think. And yet Afterpay, through various names, has moved into Europe, moved into the United States, as you say. One example is Afterpay's move to Spain. And you've made an observation about that, saying it really is a pretty difficult ask because there are already businesses there that have really not been able to crack that market. Yeah, well, they bought a company that had been operating for 11 years in Spain and that had only got uh, a very small client base after, after all that time. Had had developed 150,000 consumers, um, and they paid a, a a big price for it. I think in terms of uh, if if you look at the price, they paid 50 million euros for that company, for only 150,000 customers. 
The other point is that the other European buy now, pay later companies that have been around longer, they haven't gone to Spain or Portugal yet because it's a very tough market. You have two of the world behemoth banks, which is BBVA and Santander, which operate in Spain. You've got also very, uh, very well-run local savings banks called La Caixas. And, you know, it's a tough market and cash is still dominant in that market. So, look, good luck to them, but they're going to have to find it very, very tough. And so the, 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 and so right now, from what I hear you saying, is that you don't think that those share prices are justified, that this is a very tiny sliver of the payments market in Australia and indeed globally, that there's competition, that there are no profits. And so as a result, you basically come down to a pretty basic conclusion, don't you? Yeah, I, th- I think I think they're very good at spin. They're very good at bluster, but it's it, it, it it's a false dawn. They're they're promising. Look, I'm not giving it. I'm not an investor investment advice person. I'm an expert in the payment field. I'm looking at this strictly as a as how how successful will they be in the payments market, and and I don't think they will be in 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 either the short or the long term. This is not a brand new phenomenon that's going to sweep the world like the internet did or like smartphones did or you know this is a niche product. Which, which has been exploited. And because their competition is things like debit cards, P2P transfers. I mean, when was the last time you saw a debit card ad? You know, the, 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 the competition doesn't, doesn't advertise itself. So they've been able to make a lot of hype in a space that's, that, that, that they don't even control. So I think it's, it, it's going to be um, typical of other fintech booms, which I've seen in the last 10 years. And most of them have come and gone. And, you know, I mean, for example, the lending club that I talked about, they got to 128 US dollars. Today, you can buy it for three bucks. Grant, great to have a chat and really to try and take us through, step us through the way in which these buy now, pay later businesses operate. Uh, Grant Halverson, Chief Executive of McLean Roach, consulting business to the payment sector, but also the former Executive Vice President for Citibank's Asian Consumer Bank and former Managing Director of Diners Club here in Australia. And Grant, many thanks for your time. Pleasure, Ross. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of The Money Minutes. Thanks for your company. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome via Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. This is a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are The Money Minutes.